All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study today. Our Father, as we come together this morning, we recognize that it's a great privilege that we can do so and that we have freedom. That freedom has been purchased on many battlefields throughout the history of this nation, including the fact that some 180 years ago today, uh, those valiant men at the Alamo finally lost their battle. But, Father, the greatest battle, the greatest fight that ever occurred in history that secured for us the greatest freedom is that that occurred on Golgotha when the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, which led to his ultimate victory over death during his resurrection. He has bequeathed to us a challenge as believers in him to be disciples and to make disciples, to teach and to instruct those uh, that come into our periphery about the truth of your word, whether formally or informally. And Father, as we study today in Matthew, we recognize this is the overriding framework for understanding what Jesus is teaching and, and, and training his disciples to do in this section of, of the Gospel of Matthew. So, Father, we recognize that there is direct application for us, for ultimately this relates to our mission as well. We pray that we might be mindful and responsive to what you teach us today. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, and the key to understanding this section from, from uh, Matthew 19.25 down through uh, Matthew 20 verses 1 through 16 is really an understanding of of the fact that this principle that's stated and restated again through this section, but stated twice in this this immediate passage, and that is that the first will be last. Now, when we get there, what we have to understand, and it's good to understand this as a, as a sort of an overview framework, because what we see illustrated throughout this is this principle. Now, some people have come to this passage, and when they look at this, and they look at what Jesus is teaching, especially in the parable of the workers in the vineyard in chapter 20, uh, it, there's a chronology that, that takes place in that, in that parable. And that chronology starts off with workers that are hired at dawn, and then there's another group hired at nine in the morning, another group hired at noon, and another group hired late in the day. And so there's the first group, the second group, the third group, and the fourth group, uh, which is the last group. Now, there's an illustration there about first and last, 
but it doesn't apply in a chronological way in terms of the principle that is being that is being taught in this section. But it, it you, we have to understand that analogy. The concept of first can be both first in order and first in quality or preeminence. And the one who is last can be last in chronological order, but it can also refer to the those who are who are last in terms of quality and so that's that's what's going on here we when we look at this section especially the parable that is coming up in the first 16 verses of chapter 20 it cannot be divorced from what we have studied starting back in verse, at least verse 13 and that of course can't be divorced from what we have we have been studying throughout this whole section for those who haven't been here, let me give you a brief review so that we understand the context. In Matthew 18.1, which occurs after Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he has taken three of his disciples with him, James and John and Peter, he discovers that there's this argument going on amongst the other nine disciples. And the issue is, who is the greatest going to be in the kingdom? They're focused on status. They're focused on who's going to be uh, tops in priority, who's going to have the greatest honor, the greatest glory, the greatest position when Jesus comes in his kingdom. And, and following that, Jesus begins to teach them that it's not about status, it's about service. And I've drilled this into you the last three or four weeks, that the issue here in all this section is not that we should be focused on what our rewards are going to be in heaven, but we are to focus on the fact that we are called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the body of Christ here in this life, and that we are to rest in him to be generous and gracious at the judgment seat of Christ in terms of whatever rewards come our way, because even the ability to serve him is energized by God the Holy Spirit. And so whatever we have that is accomplished for eternity is ultimately performed through God the Holy Spirit, and our rewards are not to bring honor or glory or prestige to ourselves, but to reflect back upon the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished in history, and we are just the insignificant means by which that is accomplished. It's about service, not a focus on our status, and again and again I have uh, pointed that out. So the framework, the beginning and the end, the bookends of this chapter, this section rather, from 18.1 down to uh, 2028, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So that's the starting point, this argument among the disciples, who's going to be uh, the top dog when we get into heaven? Now, the last episode that comes up that is part of this narrative in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20, is a repetition of that same argument. But this time, you get a mama involved. And this is the mother of James and John. Her name's Salome. And she is the wife of Zebedee. And she's not named here in this passage, but she's identified that the mother of Zebedee's sons, 
these are the two sons of thunder, James and John, came to him with her sons. I would not have liked my mother to have done that. That's probably something. We all had these things in our life we remember, and we just want to go crawl in a corner and hide that we said that or that we ever did that or that anybody even knows it. And I'm sure James and John uh, felt this way. They brought the two sons, her two sons with him, and kneeling down in front of Jesus, she asked something from him. He said to her, what do you wish? And she said, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. See, she's caught up with this status bug too, just like we all are at times. We want to be somebody. Now, the last uh, verse that we come to, the last couple of verses we come to in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus again repeats this principle that's repeated, that's stated in Matthew 19.30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. It's repeated in Matthew 20.16, so the last will be first and the first last. And then it's repeated in Matthew 20.27, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the pattern for for leadership in the Christian church is not someone seeking status, but somebody who like Jesus who is willing to give up all the position, power, prestige, wealth, money, all the details of life, all the status symbols of life, because they are irrelevant for eternity. And the focus is, are we willing to do whatever the Lord wants us to do in this life? That's the structure. So within that structure, if Jesus is talking about service and not status all the way through 18, all the way through 19, and into 20, then when we come especially to this parable of the workers in the vineyard, we have to interpret it within that structure. And very few people do that. When I've been struggling with this and wrestling with this, seeing this coming over the last uh, several weeks, I kept looking at this framework and looking at this, these bookends, how this particular parable is bracketed by verse 30, of chapter 19 and verse 16 of chapter 20. Now, what we have to do is take these glasses off of the verses and the chapters and read it just straight through. That verse 1 starts, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. The for there, as we'll see, is the Greek word gar, which means it's explaining what was said in the previous verse. So it's explaining this principle that Jesus is trying to teach about the one who's first will be last and the one who is last first, and he ends it. It, it, If you have ever been in uh, trained in the military and artillery, this is called bracketing. First you overshoot the target, then you undershoot the target, and then now that you've established the uh, parameters, the third round goes right on target. Uh, in literature, this is called an inclusio, where you basically bracket the passage with similar statements so that people understand that, that where the beginning and the end are, and often those statements tell us what the focal point is going to be. So what we see in the story here of the rich young ruler, because we can't understand the parable if we haven't understood the episode with the rich young ruler right. Because the 
parable is explaining the principle of the rich young ruler, which is the first will be last. The rich young ruler is first in the eyes of the world. He's got three things going for him, and we still emphasize these things. First of all, he's got wealth. Second, he's young. And third, he is he has power. He's a rich young ruler. So he has everything in this life that is valued and that matters to people in this life that they think makes you significant and important. But Jesus said he's the... He's the, he's the first, but he's going to be last because he did not accept the challenge that Jesus set before him, which was to sell all that he had and give it to the poor. Now, as I pointed out, Jesus isn't saying this because giving everything that you have to the poor is somehow the key to spiritual maturity. That is not true for everybody, but it is true for people who are grasping hold of that particular thing because they think that will also give them status down the road, that that has significance for eternity. So he's basically, he knows exactly how to punch the rich young ruler's buttons and to get his attention. Now, for other people, it's other aspects of, of, of life. It's other details of life that, that, that are the issue. And it is those details of life that become idols in our life and that separate us from consistent obedience to God. They're often, as I pointed out last time, the sins that so easily beset us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And sometimes they're just the details of life that distract us and prevent us from truly focusing on the path to discipleship and, and spiritual maturity. And so we have to understand, again, the structure of this episode with the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he is asking him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? We have to understand that he is a regenerate man, that he has already a believer because the language as I've gone through in the previous two or three classes tells us that he's not talking about how to get to heaven because the the language, the phrases that are used that are parallel, he asks, what must I do to have eternal life in parallel passages in the other Gospels? He, it's inherit eternal life. And, he, and then uh, Jesus says to him, you want to enter into life, and I've pointed out that entering into life again and again isn't getting life eternal so that when you die you go to heaven. Entering into life is entering into the rich, full, abundant life that Jesus has for those who are already saved. And Jesus then, we see, uh, interprets his core question in terms of rewards and status in the kingdom. And this is seen in verse 21 when Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, see, he doesn't say if you want to have eternal life. He doesn't say if you want to go to heaven. He says if you want to be perfect. And that Greek word is teleos, which means mature. So Jesus understands that the question is related to maturity, not to how to be justified from our sins or how to go to heaven when we die instead of the lake of fire. Jesus says, if you want to be mature, 
Go, sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The phrase treasure in heaven is a phrase that relates to uh, eternal rewards that will be distributed at the judgment seat of Christ. This is an important phrase that is emphasized uh, several times in the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels. In Matthew 6.19, Jesus said to his disciples, remember in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't talking about unbelievers and what must be done to have eternal justification. He's talking to his disciples about what's involved in being a disciple and what is required to be to have a position and privilege in the kingdom that at that point he is still announcing. In Matthew six nineteen, he says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. It's not about your bank account. It's not about what kind of cars are in your garage. It's not about what kind of garage you put your cars in. It's not about the clothes that you have. It is about what we have for eternity because what we have in this life is less than a drop of water in all of the seas and oceans on the earth. Eternity is far beyond that. We cannot comprehend it. We are to not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I'd paraphrase this, where you still have to paint it, fix it, and repair it. That's, that's what that's talking about. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The focal point is that that which motivates you in this life, if it has to do with status, with money, with uh, people, with things, with power, with prestige, then you're motivated by the wrong thing, And what should motivate you as a believer and a disciple in Christ is that you are focused on serving the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever capacity you find yourself in and being willing to give up whatever you love in this life if that's what it takes to serve the Lord. The Lord often doesn't require that of us, but he does want us to be willing to give up everything in order to serve him so that we have complete and total obedience to him. Luke says it this way in Luke 12:21, so he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. So when it's all said and done and your earthly remains are in the casket and you are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, the issue is going to be what have you stored up for yourself in heaven? I mean that's the real retirement plan, folks. It's not taken out and putting into your 401k during your 20s and 30s and 40s, and most people don't start thinking about it till their 50s or 60s, if at all. The real retirement plan is what are you laying up for yourself now in your eternal 401k plan? Luke 12:32, Jesus says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourself money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the issue here is not on what it need, what is required in order to go to heaven when we die, but what is going to be there in terms of our rewards that will impact eternity. Colossians 3.24 says that knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. We're talking about rewards. 
Here's the catchphrase. Rewards are earned. Salvation is free. Rewards are earned. Salvation is free. So in this passage, when Jesus says to the young man, you need to be willing to save it, all, uh, sell it all and give it to the poor, that's, that's works. That's effort. That's, that's not talking about justification or salvation. And it's clearly understood that way so that when the disciples hear him, they, they're astonished. I pointed this out last time, last week that they're just gobsmacked. They are just, their mouths drop open. They cannot fathom what Jesus is saying and how significant this is. They're, they're just saying, well, well, who then can be saved? Well, the way that it's typically read is, who then can get into heaven? And, and then it, it's very likely the next passage could, can conform to that. When Jesus says, when, with men this is impossible, with God, with God all things are possible, we make that sound like this is how you get to heaven. God, you can't save yourself. God does it. But this doesn't make sense in the whole context and the whole flow. And we've learned this many times that the word saved can refer to three different stages or phases of salvation. And the disciples here clearly understand that this is talking about rewards because we know this because of what Peter asks um, when, when we get down to verse, um, verse 27. So the issue here is salvation. So let's review this. Phase one justification takes place when you trust in Christ as your Savior. The instant you understand that eternal salvation, your eternal destiny, is determined by one thing and one thing only, and that is what you think about Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The instant you trust in Christ as Savior, at that instant God credits you with the righteousness of Christ and declares you to be eternally justified before him, not because of anything on your part or my part, but because we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And on that basis, God says, you are justified. We are declared to be just. And what also happens at that time is that we are regenerated. We are born again. We become a new creature in Christ, and as babies, we have to grow and nourish, and this is the second phase, our spiritual life. And the spiritual life continues until we're either raptured or we die physically, and then we are absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, and this is called glorification. In phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin, eternity in the lake of fire. In phase two, we're saved from the power of sin. This is the fact that we are being saved day after day. It is also called progressive sanctification. And then at phase three, we're saved from the presence of sin, and we will be saved. So we, whenever we see that word saved, we have to find out what it's talking about. If it's talking about one of these three things, it can also describe being, being rescued from a disaster. It can also describe being healed from an illness. The word sozo has a wide range of meaning, but theologically it has these three senses, either justification, spiritual life, sanctification, or glorification. And in this passage, they're not talking about getting into heaven. They're talking about what, who then can be saved? Who then can, can really have rewards in heaven if we have to give it all up? They just, they, they can't comprehend it. 
And so Jesus looks at them and he asks them, or he states to them, with, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So this is important here because we have to get into Peter's head just, just a little bit and the head of these, the other disciples. They're wrestling with the same kind of idea that many of us wrestle with. And, and I don't think there would be a person here, unless you're just, just dropped in recently, I don't think there's a person here who has, hasn't wondered what's going to be there for me at the judgment seat of Christ. When all my works are burned up, What's going to be left in terms of gold, silver, and precious stones? On what basis am I going to have any position, privilege, power, responsibility in the kingdom? Have I done anything that is going to be rewarded? And we're asking that from a genuine humble position. We're not asking it like the rich young ruler because we're trying to get something and be somebody in the kingdom. We're asking it from the viewpoint, I just want to make sure that I've served the Lord. How do I know? And that's what Peter is going to be asking here. And Jesus, Jesus is addressing this when he says, with men, this is impossible. You and I can't figure it out in this life. We can't look at yesterday, which is fairly fresh in our memories, or even this morning, and say, how much time this morning was I walking by the Spirit? How much time was was spent where my mental attitude and my focus was on uh, in, in obedience to the Lord and walking by the Spirit? How much of that time was in fellowship? How much of that time was out of fellowship? I don't know. You don't know. Jesus says, see, with men, it's imp- impossible. You can't know this. You cannot evaluate your life and figure out what is going to be there in terms of rewards. But he says, with God, this is, this is possible. With God, all things are possible. Why? Because God is omniscient. He knows when we're walking by the Spirit, when we're not walking by the Spirit. He understands uh, our, our thinking. He understands our motivation. He understands uh, what we want. We recognize that, that on a good day that we don't want to be embarrassed or ashamed at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. 1 John 2.28, John warns that little children abide in him. And we've seen in many studies that abide in him is just another way of talking about walking by the Spirit, being in fellowship, growing to maturity. Abide in him that when he appears, that is when the Lord Jesus Christ appears at the rapture and we're taken to be with him, that's immediately followed by the judgment seat of Christ. When he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is most specifically uh, described in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it starts about verse 12 and goes down to about verse 17 or 18, and, or excuse me, down to about verse 15, rather. And there we read, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, that is, you lose rewards, but he himself will be saved... That's glorified, phase three, yet so as through fire. You are going into heaven, but there's no rewards. There's nothing rewardable. There is nothing in terms of that that qualifies us for service in the kingdom. We will be there, but that's pretty much it. 
So Jesus is saying that man can't figure this out, only God can, and he alone has the perfect logarithm, the perfect metric, whatever you, however you want to describe it, that takes into account all of our heart desires, our motivation, our walk by the Spirit, our overt obedience, uh, everything is understood by him, and he will reward us according to his grace and according to his generosity. And that's really the key to understanding what's going to come up in the next parable. Jesus is explaining that it's not about what's going on with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came in and he asked the question, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He's asking about rewards. And basically, he's got this legalistic mindset that he wants to understand what's the contractual relationship so that if I do X, Y, and Z, I know that I will have A, B, and C in terms of rewards in heaven. He wants a tight contract there so he'll know exactly what he's going to get in return for the investment of obedience. Now, that's critical to understand that. I haven't brought that out in the past but I don't think you really, it's really uh, something you grasp until you understand the, the significance of the parable that's coming up. Because in the parable, there's a distinction between these three groups of workers, these day laborers. And the first group comes to the landowner, the, or the landowner goes to them, and he sits down in a negotiation with them at dawn, and he says, I need you to come work the fields for the day, and they negotiate what the precise wage is going to be. You do X, Y, or Z, and I'm going to pay you a denarius. That first category of worker is the rich young ruler. They want to know exactly what they're going to get for what they obey. They, they're entering into this legal kind of contract, and they're not just trusting in God in terms of service to reward them out of his grace and out of his, out of his generosity. So, Peter catches the drift of this. And he recognizes what the Lord has said. And said if you, he, he sees that the Lord is saying that if you want to be a disciple, you've got to be willing to, to give up. Not that giving up somehow, it's not asceticism. It's not giving up is going to make you, make you glorified or glorify you in this life. It's not like the, the ancient monks and started the monastic movement or the ascetics that went out into the uh, deserts of North Africa and the Middle East and lived without food or without water or sat up on top of a pillar for six years or so, uh, thinking that would make them spiritual. Uh, Peter grasped this, that, that, that we're either serving the Lord or we're serving mammon. Mammon just stands for all the details of the life. Life. That doesn't mean that as a Christian you can't serve in places of employment, work, categories of, of labor, whatever, and that that's not part of your service to the Lord. But what is the ultimate end game in your thinking? And so when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, you need to give it all up and give it to the poor, sell it and give it to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven. Now Peter puts that together and he says, Well, Lord, Lord, we have left all and followed you. 
Now, if you get the Marxist that comes along and says, see, see, Jesus really doesn't want you to have anything. You have to be impoverished. You know, just follow Bernie Sanders and everything will be fine. That's not what's going on here because Peter understood what the issue was for the rich young ruler. He needed to be willing to sell it all and give it to the poor. But, but is that what the disciples did? He said, we left all. He didn't say we sold it. They still owned their fishing business. They still owned their fishing boats. They st- Peter still owned his home in Capernaum. He's recognizing that, that the issue that Jesus is asking is, are we willing to leave it all to serve the Lord and to follow him? So Peter frames the question well. He says, Lord, well, that's what we've done. We did that. We left it all and we followed you. What are we going to have? It's a question about rewards, not about eternal justification. And so in verse 28, Jesus affirms what they've done. He said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, see, that was what he said to the, was saying to the rich young ruler, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and what? Come and follow me. Follow me is not how to get to heaven. Follow me is discipleship. So Jesus says to the twelve, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Notice this is in the dispensation of Israel. This is in the age of Israel. He's talking about ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. He's using a, a Jewish term in the regeneration that uh, Peter uses the phrase the times of refreshing in Acts 3. It's talking about the kingdom. It's talking about going on into eternity. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man comes, this is a loaded term, a messianic term coming out of Daniel 7, when the Son of Man, before he returns to the earth, the Son of Man goes before the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, and at that point God the Father gives him the kingdom. That's the same as the scroll, the title deed for the kingdom in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. The scroll is given to the Lamb that comes before the throne, takes it from the Father, and then proceeds to prepare the earth for his coming through the judgment and cleansing of the tribulation, which is focused ultimately on preparing uh, Israel to accept Jesus as the messianic son of David, the son of man promised in in, uh, uh, Daniel chapter 7. When the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, he's not on the throne of his glory now. We're not into this kingdom now theology. There is no kingdom now. The kingdom is a messianic kingdom. When the Messiah, the son of David, sits on the throne of his glory in Jerusalem, right now, according to Revelation 3.21, he is seated at the right hand of the Father on his Father's throne, not on his throne. He doesn't get his throne until Daniel 7 when he's given the title deed for the earth and comes and takes the earth for himself. When that happens, he establishes his kingdom and he will um, give out rewards. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. 
This isn't getting into heaven. This is inheritance. Inheritance is rewards. And he will be rewarded a hundredfold. Notice the generosity there. That's the focal point in understanding all of this. And then Jesus concludes it, and this is the introduction to the parable. He says, but many who are first, that is, who appear to be the ones who have a fast track to to a key position in the kingdom, many who are first, they, they look good by human viewpoint standards, but they're not. They're first, they have seem to have priority, but they will be last. They will not have position, privilege, or power in the kingdom. But the last, that is, those who have no standing in this life, the disciples were nobodies. And all but one of the disciples was martyred. They got the point. Isn't that interesting? They all ended up dying for the gospel, except for the apostle John. And he was imprisoned for a while on the Isle of Patmos, but he's the only one who died uh, of natural causes. So Jesus emphasizes this. Now we're going to illustrate it. Verse 6, Matthew 20, um, verse 1. I should have put verse 1 there. Uh, Excuse me. Matthew 19.30 says, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then at the end of the section, he says, So the last will be first, and the first last. So this parable that is sandwiched between 1930 and 2016 is illustrating that which comes before verse 30. Just logically, verse 30 is the summary statement of why Matthew has put the rich young ruler in here and what he is teaching contextually. And so what Jesus is saying in verses in the conversation from with his disciples from verse twenty three to verse thirty is directly related to to what has happened. He's using the rich young ruler as an object lesson. And then he's going to conclude and say, see, you, you think he's, he's, he's somebody, but whose first will be last and whose last is going to be first. Now let me illustrate that. And so the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard illustrates it. This is one of those parables that is terribly misunderstood. I've heard some dispensationalists say, see, this is talking about the first are the Jews. They were given the gospel first. They came along, and they were in God's plan first. And then there are others that came along later. There's the church-age believers, and then there's the tribulation saints. And so this is talking about some sort of chronology and history. That doesn't fit the context at all. I've heard others and read others who say that this is talking about something related to salvation, those who are saved early in life versus those saved later in life. It has nothing whatsoever to do with that. It is talking about the, the, the principle here, those who are, 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 are first, who think they really have something to be honored, they have a basis for being great in the kingdom, going back to Matthew 18.1, they will be last because they don't have the right attitude, the right motivation. It sours what they've done. And then those who were last will be first. So that's what this is talking about in terms of understanding this particular passage. So the conclusion is going to be, so the last will be first and the first last. And the point is that the rich young ruler, as I've said, was first in this life. He had wealth, youth, and power. But he held on to his earthly desires for status, and he will be last. The disciples, whom we view as insignificant in this life, they're last. 
but they will be first. They are going to be granted 12 thrones to rule in the kingdom. So, as I said earlier, Matthew 20, verse 1, begins with this explanation. And so it's a pretty simple story to understand. Basically, you've got a guy who's got a, got a vineyard, and he needs some, some day laborers. So he goes down the Southwest Freeway, 59 South, somewhere around Chimney Rock, and there's a whole bunch of, of, uh, of uh, South American and Central American and Mexican day laborers there waiting for somebody to pick him up and give him a job for the day. And so he gets out there before anybody else. He gets out there at the crack of dawn, and he picks up uh, enough day laborers that he thinks will accomplish the job. But they get out there, and then they begin to bargain. They barter. What are we going to get for our time? And he barters for a denarius a day, which was the going uh, rate for a day of labor. And they're the only ones in this group that have bartered for a set amount, a set return. That's like the rich young ruler. He wants to know, if I'm going to give you X, I want to know what I'm going to get in return A. I want to have this nailed down. And he's not just trusting and serving the Lord that whatever the Lord rewards me with, it'll be based on his grace, his generosity. My focus is serving him, not on what I'm going to get in the kingdom. So the first group represents the thinking of the rich young ruler, a a desire for a bargain, a guaranteed return on their invested time of labor. And he goes out the third hour, which is 9 o'clock in the morning. He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Well, you guys haven't been picked up for the day yet. And he says to them, go into the vineyard and notice. He doesn't barter with them. He doesn't set what the wage is going to be. He just says, and whatever is right, I will give you. In other words, these guys have to just trust in his goodness and his generosity and his character to make things right. There's no set return on what they're going to do. In verse 5 through 7, again, he goes out the 6th and the ninth hour. He goes out at noon. He goes out at 3 p.m. and did likewise. And about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he goes out and he found others standing idle and said, Why have you been standing here idle all day? Why haven't you been working? And they said, Well, nobody came out to hire us. And so he says, you two go in the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So the 9 o'clock group, the 12 o'clock group, the 3 o'clock group, and the 5 o'clock group are just trusting in the goodness and the generosity of the landowner to pay them for what they do. And here's what happens. When evening comes, the owner of the vineyard called his steward and says, call him in. He got his manager, and he said, call in all the workers and give them their wages and notice beginning with the last to the first. So you've got to understand that phrase is critical to understanding the whole breakdown of this parable because of the structure stated in 1930 and 20 verse 16 that the last will be first. So he's going to start with the last ones, the 5 o'clock crowd. When those came in who were hired at the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. Now, this is going to really aggravate The others, this isn't socialism. Everybody gets the same pay no matter how little work they get. Jesus is teaching a principle of grace here. This isn't salvation. This is a return on work. This is labor. Whenever you see wages, we're talking about working for something. Remember, salvation's free. Rewards are earned. So they each received a denarius. And then he it's assumed, it's not stated, but he went to the 3 o'clock crowd, the 12 o'clock crowd, the 9 o'clock crowd. They each got a denarius, and when the first ones came, 
they thought, well, he's he's given these people more and so much more than what he would have given us. Uh, we're going to get more than a denarius. He's going to he's going to give us maybe two denarii. We're going to we're going to be taken care of. And likewise, they each received a denarius. They got what they bargained for. The others never bargained. And so when they received it, they complained against the landowner. And he said, well, the last ones worked for only an hour, and you made them equal to us who've become the burden in the heat of the day. We worked it through the hottest part of the day, and we really labored, and, and, and these guys didn't. So how, how is this just? And the landowner answers and says, I'm not doing you any wrong. How come you're complaining? Didn't you agree with me? You entered into a contractual agreement that, to do your work for denarius. That's what I paid you. Take what's yours, go your way. But I want to give to the last man the same as to you. That's my prerogative. Isn't it lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? I have the right to spend my money the way I want to spend my money. Without interference of the federal government, without interference of anybody else telling me how to spend my money. That's just an additional point for everybody. We have a right to spend our money the way we want to spend our money without the government coming in and telling us how to spend our money. I won't ride that hobby horse anymore. And he says, or is your eye evil because I am good? How many of you all understand what that means? Right? You got it. We'll bow our heads, close in prayer, and move on. Right? The evil eye is not some kind of juju black magic where somebody's looking at you and casting a curse on you. This is a Jewish idiom that runs throughout the scripture that is that reflects on how you view your possessions. An evil-eyed person is a person who is greedy, who's a tightwad, and who is focused on getting all he can get for himself. A good-eyed person is a person who is open and generous and gracious. And so what Jesus is saying here is, or is your eye evil? Are you just a stingy tightwad? Now, one of the reasons we, I say this, or a lot of reasons for this, but in Proverbs 28-22, we have in the New King James Version, a man with an evil eye hastens after riches. This is a ra, the word evil in Hebrew is ra, the word for eye is ayin, it's a ra ayin, an evil eye. And he hastens after riches. He's greedy. He is materialistic. He is focused on getting everything for himself and not giving anything to anybody. Proverbs 22.9 says, He who has a generous eye, literally this is an iron tove, a good eye. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Notice the emphasis here on grace and generosity. The point of this parable is that Jesus is saying that the landowner is generous and gracious and that the laborers who came late in the day, the ones who were last, were ones who were serving not on the basis of a contractual agreement for what they're going to get out of it, but they're resting and trusting in the generosity and the goodness of the landowner to do what is right by them. See, the issue for us isn't, what am I going to get out of this? How do I know what I'm going to get at the judgment seat of Christ? What am I going to get so that I know for sure what my role is going to be in the kingdom? We can't know. With man, that's impossible. 
But with God, it's possible. He'll know. But the attitude for us is to serve the Lord out of grace orientation, trusting in Him that when we are there at the judgment seat of Christ, He will treat us and deal with us on the basis of His love and His grace and His generosity so that we can rest in Him and not worry about how that's going to be and just serve Him here and now. This is the focus focal point, verse 16. The last will be first and the first last. The last are those who are just focusing on what they're going to do to serve the Lord, not their prestige, power, place, or anything today. And and then Jesus concludes, For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, that's not in some versions, but it is in the majority text, and I think the evidence is weak for it being excluded from this passage. Many are called, and that word chosen is the word that should be translated choice. It's the word that's used many times in Hebrew and Greek, but, some, but the, translating it chosen indicates, and it's often used for people for, the, for a doctrine of election, but it's talking about their quality, their quality. Many are called, but few are choice. Those who are willing to serve and be thought of as last, not seeking to be first, These are the choice ones. These are those who have quality. These are the ones who are the premier believers. They are the ones who will be rewarded in heaven. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon this passage, difficult passage, challenging passage, one that reminds us that we are to live to serve you. We are called to be disciples not to simply be believers, not to simply uh, go to church once a week, not simply be nod to God, but to really be focused that everything in our life is on serving you, our work, our employment, our labor, whatever it is. It's not for our personal gain or our personal comfort. It is to serve you, to be reflected in our lives as disciples, and that we're not concerned ultimately about the what our rewards may be in terms of specifics, but only that we glorify you with that which you have produced in our lives by virtue of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we want to make it clear that if anyone here is unsure of their salvation or their eternal destiny, that salvation is not based on who we are or what we do. It's not based on our background. It's not based on uh, what church we belong to or any other human factor. It's based exclusively on what Christ did on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins in full. When, he, when John says, when it was finished, that is, when it was all accomplished, Jesus said, it is finished. The repetition there emphasizes that all of the work was done between 12 noon and 3 p.m., at which time Jesus said, it is accomplished. The work of salvation, the payment for the penalty of sin was completed, and at that point, he died. Physically, It was that spiritual death when God the Father poured out our sins upon him and judged him for our sins in our place that that transaction was accomplished so that the issue isn't what have we done, what are our sins, what are the problems. The issue is what do you think about Jesus? And the instant we trust in him alone for salvation, we have eternal life which can never be taken from us. Father, we pray that you will challenge us with what we studied this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.